Hello, I'm delighted to welcome you as you join me on Search for Truth, your Bible study program with teacher Brian Johnston. We begin a new series of eight weeks of studies today, which focuses on the final hours of the Lord Jesus, which he spent in that upper room with his disciples before he went to his death on the cross. Brian's called this series, No Room for Doubt. Today we consider the upper room as a war room. What is meant by that, we're about to hear from Brian, because here he is. Thanks, John. Yes, the Gospel by John divides itself into two parts. The first part contains chapters 1 through 12. At the beginning of chapter 13, where we now start the second part of John's Gospel, we discover we've been suddenly transported to the upper guest chamber of a house in Jerusalem. The Gospel written by Luke helps to fill in the details for us. For in Luke chapter 22, from verse 10, Jesus is telling his disciples how they are to prepare for the Passover observance that year. He says to them, When you have entered the city, a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house that he enters. And you shall say to the owner of the house, The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large furnished upper room. Prepare it there. On careful examination, we find we've visited such a guest room before in the Gospels, but the other occasion was at the other end of Jesus' life on earth. In the story of Christ's birth, the original Bible wording doesn't actually say that there was no room in the inn, despite how popular that reading has become. It simply and more accurately says there was no place or no space in the guest room. And in Luke's version of the events that correspond to our reading now from John chapter 13, Luke uses the very same word as he'd used earlier for Christ's birthplace. He uses it for what's here described by John as this upper room in Jerusalem. And this is clearly a guest room in a private home in Jerusalem. So far we've seen that the second part of John's Gospel begins in this upper guest room in Jerusalem. If the first part of John's Gospel opened with what's often called the prologue, chapter 1 verses 1 to 18, then the second part of John's Gospel, beginning now in chapter 13, opens with an acted parable. I'm referring, of course, to the dramatic foot-washing episode. Before we come to that, let's read the first four verses. Now, before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come that he would depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And during supper, the devil having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had handed all things over to him, and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, got up from supper and laid his outer garments aside. And he took a towel and tied it around himself. That's John 13, the first four verses. And in those verses, we're told what was in Judas' heart and what was in Jesus' hands. The Father had given all things into his hands. Verse 3 reads in the ESV. And when taken together, 
They set the scene for the climactic story of cosmic conflict that's here about to unfold. For what we're reminded of here is the long war of human rebellion against God's sovereignty, a rebellion inspired by Satan, who is himself, like us, a creation of God. Long before Satan invaded the heart of Judas in the upper room, he'd invaded the Garden of Eden. There, like the serpent whose form he took, he injected venom into Eve's mind. He poisoned her with resentment against God, for he encouraged her to doubt God's word by hinting that God was holding back something better than the perfection of the garden that she'd already been enjoying. Eve was deceived into trusting Satan's lie over against the true word of God, and all of humanity has been doing that ever since. How readily the Bible and its statements are disregarded today. If Eve, while experiencing daily contact with God during each evening coolness in the paradise of Eden, could have her thoughts turned against God by the serpent-like behaviour of God's enemy, is it so remarkable that someone who'd known the privilege of living for three years in such close contact with the Son of God could now allow himself to become corrupted? Day after day, Judas had witnessed Jesus dispense one blessing after another to people in great need. But despite that, and in the words by which the Old Testament predicted it, he lifted up his heel against the supreme benefactor. Here's the full prediction that's found in Psalm 41 verse 9. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. And Judas was again sitting at table with Jesus that night. But could it be there's another reminder of the storyline of Genesis chapter 3 here in the upper room, one that's triggered by the word heal. For when the Lord God judged the principal actors in that primeval rebellion in Eden's garden, he announced concerning Satan, and I will make enemies of you and the woman, and of your offspring and her descendant. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. That's found, of course, in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. Judas lifted up his heel against Jesus that night in the upper room. The bigger picture was Satan was about to bruise the heel of the one who then sat at table with Judas. It's because of this that we might style the upper room at Jerusalem as a war room. The decisive battle in the long war against God was about to take place. The pieces were moving into place in that upper war room. As we'll see in our next reading, Soon Jesus will cup the heel of Judas in his hands and wash it, the very heel that was lifted up against him. We read in verses 5 and 6 of John 13, Then he, that's Jesus, poured water into the basin and began washing the disciples' feet and wiping them with the towel which he had tied around himself. So he came to Simon Peter. He said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? Was Peter the only disciple to react in this way? It's certainly only recorded of him. But did he not wash the feet of all the disciples? Yes, including Judas. It's useless to speculate what was then in Judas' mind. There was pure evil in his heart. He was contemplating the greatest wickedness. The Lord knew what was in man, so he knew malice aforethought was in the mind of Judas, 
who even then may have been putting the finishing touches to his fiendish plan. We don't know when others are thinking uncharitably towards us. We only suspect or presume when this may be the case. But how do we cope in those moments? If we are considering ways to get even, or even should we gloat when their plans misfire, then we're fighting with the weapons of this world. By contrast, do we not bow our heads and worship when we read of Jesus' reaction to the mother of all conspiratorial plots being hatched in the dark heart of the traitor? Jesus graciously serves Judas by washing his feet. Those feet would soon be running to the chief priests to assist them in having the kind hands of Jesus nailed to the cross, hands that were even then refreshing his soiled feet. But all the disciples, as we'll see in our next study, were incubating pride in their hearts. After all, that's why they were seated at table while Jesus knelt before them. God's own challenge to Job in the Old Testament was this, Look at everyone who is arrogant and humble him and trample down the wicked where they stand. Then I will also confess to you that your own right hand can save you. The book of Job chapter 40 verses 12 to 14. How wonderfully Jesus meets this qualification of a saviour. We confess as saviour the one who, clothed with a towel, humbled the pride of the living of those men seated at that evening dining table and who also, through the far greater humiliation of his cross, would trample down the wicked betrayer while crushing the head of Satan who motivated him. Hallelujah! What a saviour! Well, our initial look into the events of the upper room have led us to style it as a war room. In our next study, we'll be treating it as a washroom. But by that, we literally mean a room where washing takes place. No ordinary washing, for we'll be discussing ultimate cleansing.
Now, did you enjoy today's study? And did you note the relevance of the words of the hymn we just heard? Lord of eternity, dwells in humanity, kneels in humility, and washes our feet. I remind you there's a book of all the talks in this series, and you can obtain a copy by downloading it at churchesofgod.info forward slash media. Another way to get one is by writing to us and ask for a hard copy book to be posted to you. Just ask for the book title, No Room for Doubt. And remember to tell us your postal address so we know where to send it. You can use email or the post, and here's our postal address. Search for Truth, Hayes Press, The Barn, Flaxlands, Royal Wootton Bassett, Swindon SN48DY, UK. Our email address is sft at churchesofgod.info. It's been great to enjoy the pleasure of your company once again today, and I hope you'll be able to join me next time when, as Brian said, we'll be visiting the washroom. Now, sadly, I must say goodbye. But till next time, I leave you with very best wishes from Bible teacher Brian, producer David, our singers, and me, John. See you again soon, and in the meantime, we wish you God's richest blessings.